FX Medicine is evolving. As we continue to grow, it's important to us that we remain clinically relevant to your practice. So if you know of an expert you want to hear from, let us know. You can contact us on fxmedicine.com.au, Facebook or Instagram. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Christine Pope, who's a naturopath and nutritionist and who has clinical experience at Elemental Health St Ives in Sydney, as well as currently serving as a director on the ATMS board, where she's the treasurer and also chair of the marketing committee. Her focus on the ATMS board is to promote natural medicine and its benefits to practitioners and public of Australia. Christine was a lecturer and head of nutritional medicine at Nature Care College for over five years, and her expertise in clinical practice is on supporting women dealing with menopause, autoimmune disorders, and cognitive decline. Welcome to FX Medicine, Christine. How are you going? I'm good, thanks, Andrew. Yourself? I'm very well, thanks. We're seeing cognitive decline affecting more and more Australians. Indeed, around the world, it's going to be a scourge of our health systems around the world. But I think before we get into how you care for these patients, tell us a little bit about how your career began, Christine. Well, this is probably my second career. Um, My first career was actually in banking, um, which is probably a bad, a dirty word after the Royal Commission, (laughs) but um, was actually a really interesting career. I worked for Macquarie Bank for a number of years and um, got to see a lot of really interesting transactions and deals. But um, at a point, I became really interested in health, um, and personally, I found that um, most of the mainstream interventions I was being offered weren't really agreeing with my system at all. You know, it was usually the cure was worse than the disease, so mm-hmm. I started looking for other options, and I found that um, herbal medicine and homeopathy and nutrition and supplements worked a lot better for me. So once, uh, when I was at a stage that I had young kids and I was looking for something else to do that was a little bit more family-friendly, I became interested in studying and I went to nature care and studied um, uh, nutrition and homeopathy and then um, more recently I upgraded to naturopathy in 2017. So it took me a while to knock off all the herb subjects. <laughs> <laughs> Which I couldn't do without. What I think is interesting is it very very commonly it happens that people are okay with the medical system, the, the, the orthodox medicine, medicine system, until it fails them until something doesn't suit them or it it doesn't help with their condition, something like that. Is that the sort of thing that happened with you, that you were using normal pharmacological approaches and it just wasn't getting you the results that you that you needed? Yeah, and mine specifically was around antibiotics. Um, I, as a child, I was allergic to penicillin, so I was already, ah. you know, um, restricted in what I could use. And um, after one year when, you know what it's like, I mean, most of the mums out there would know what it's like. You've got two young children, they get sick all the time, you nurse them, and then you get it worse. And um, unfortunately, every time they gave me the antibiotics, I'd have such horrendous side effects that I actually got really afraid of getting sick. Right. And fortunately, my mother dragged me along to see um, her naturopath the first time. 
and that was when I sort of went, okay, this is, you know, I've got to, I've got to try some other things. I mean, for me, diet was also a big thing too. I'm sure. a little bit embarrassed about how bad it was at mm. that time. But um, can I say there was a lot of coffee and I can't drink coffee anymore. Right. So, you know. Mm. So tell us a little bit about your progression to being elected to the ATMS board. Well, I was, um, I had actually been on a, a small association board and while I was, I found I really like working on projects for that group, um, it was really frustrating not having any resources. Um, so, you know, because there's so much you want to do when you're on a, a not-for-profit and in our industry there's just so much that needs doing and you're constantly being limited by people's time and availability and willingness to, you know, write a report or um, spend spend six weeks down in Canberra lobbying or whatever it is. And so um, I was actually approached, I've been working on a um, group that was looking at other registration models for the industry called the Natural Medicine Register. And um, I was working with a couple of ATMS directors and I got approached about standing for their board. I'm a nutritionist, so I have been a member of ATMS for a number of years because they were one of the few associations that was covering my qual. Um, and so I was originally appointed as um, on a casual vacancy and then um, stood for election and I've been re-elected twice. So that was how I got involved with the ATMS board. But I think it's it's really interesting being part of a multimodality group mm. because so many practitioners aren't just one thing. Mm. You know, they don't just use diet. They don't just use herbs. They use a range of different tools. And... It's good having that, in one sense, it's really good having that broad aspect of looking at, you know, body work and TCM and um, natural, what I would call ingestives, but, you know, naturopathy, herbs, um, nutrition, etc. Yeah. On another sense, it can also be frustrating because then, of course, you've got 20 different things, 20 different modalities that think that they should be the only focus that you have. Ah, as, <laughs> as is always the way. Yeah, so... Yeah. But, you know, it's been good that, you know, particularly in the, la in the last 12 months I've got really involved in terms of lobbying and advocacy. Um, that came out of the marketing role. I was, the, I was comfortable being able to talk to people about the benefits of natural medicine and I'd been talking to press and media and then it was a logical extension to then go down to Canberra and talk to them. But I've also got a commercial banking background so I could also run the small business argument. You know, you're not just affecting people who are claiming rebates with these changes, you're actually affecting 28,000 small businesses that um, employ 35,000 people Australia-wide and, you know, contribute about $4 billion to the Australian economy. Mm. Mm. So, you know, think about the broader aspects of what you're doing. Um, so ATMS has always been running lobbying on two platforms. One is natural medicine, but the other one is small business. And um, we also worked with an association that does a lot of lobbying for small business, which is COSBOA, which is the Council of Small Business Association. So we had some really good help there. They they really helped us get in the door with a lot of people. Ah, okay. It's COSBOA. Yeah. yeah. So it's Council of Small Business Association. Gotcha. But, um, yeah. Um, having, having someone kind of help guide us through that process was invaluable. I mean, there's a lot of lobbyists in Canberra, but these guys are basically representing a lot of small business associations to try and get them the same same entry that into Canberra that um, those of us who can afford lobbyists have. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, let's get on to the topic for today, cognitive decline. Mm. What, what sparked your interest in caring for these patients? 
Well, I mean, as always, there was one case where I got really frustrated that I didn't have the tools available. Um, and I always remember because this guy had great family support, but um, I thought when I first met him he was nonverbal because he didn't actually speak to me at all in the consultation. Right. Um, I had to work with his um, wife and one of his children who basically gave me the case. Um, there were some things we found that really helped him, but it really just stalled things. It didn't, it didn't cause it to regress. And, um, you know, over about 18 months, two years, he got into a situation where he needed higher care. Yep. Um, but, you know, really interesting, um, fish oils and phosphatidylcholine were the two things that the family could see really made a difference. So they kept him on that regardless. So it was one of those sort of moments of going, okay, well, this obviously helps with the brain, but I got frustrated with the case a little because the family weren't prepared to make any dietary changes. And, you know, that was that was one area where I felt that really the diet wasn't supporting him because it was a very traditional, you know, what they call sad diet, standard yep. Australian diet. Yep. Um, and, I, and, and given his background, I felt a Mediterranean-style diet would have been a lot better for him. But that was when I saw Dale Bredesen speak couple of years ago mm. and I then went and did the training in San Francisco that he offered because it was like it sort of made sense with all the other pieces that were coming into play that there needed to be more intervention and it needed to be a much wider spread range of interventions than just one or two supplements or one or two dietary changes. And now you mentioned that there wasn't a regression of symptoms and this is obviously one of the sad things of cognitive decline and Alzheimer's. Um, something that's very frustrating to all practitioners, um, that we just don't have any regressive medications. But what about the use of fish oil? How did it help this patient? Well, it was really interesting. It actually um, had an impact on his mood and behaviour, um, which, you know, isn't surprising from <clears throat> anyone who's ever used it for anxiety and depression. Yeah. But um, what it, it actually made him calmer. Right. Because the other reason I was interested in this area is because a lot of people in my age group are actually coping with parents or yes. relatives with dementia. And, you know, one of the things is there's a lot of anxiety and um, basically they get very, you know, that they they can actually be quite aggressive. Mm. And what was what was coming up with this particular patient was he was a lot calmer when he was on the fish oil. And... I'm pretty sure it was due to the fact that, you know, from a from the perspective of um, cell membrane integrity, when your diet's not very good, mm. those cell membranes are not in very good order and effectively um, things aren't working as well. So putting in a good quality fish oil supplement, and I probably wasn't dosing high enough. I was using a teaspoon a day. Right. But that seemed to have enough of a benefit. So we're talking, you know, five to six grams equivalent. Yeah. Um made a difference to his brain health and he was therefore calmer and easier for the family to manage. And this, is, uh, again, is one of the issues is, you know, very, very commonly these patients are heavily medicated. Um, yeah. One could argue that it's common for these patients to be over-medicated, but let's not get into that. Um, that's, that's a tough one. Yeah, mm. but, but um, it's very interesting that in light of a poor diet, one can... Um, have dramatic effects with very simple um, additions. You, you know, obviously we'd want to change diet first, and that's the great 
lessons that we've learned from people like Felice Jacker. Um, but then we've got, you know, Julia Rucklidge over in New Zealand having brilliant results with different patient populations, but very interesting how it works on the mind, if you like, how fish oil works on the mind. It is. And, you know, when you think about it, I mean, your brain is coated in fat. And if we've been introducing really poor quality fats for a very long period of time, the raw materials that the brain's had have been really deficient yeah. for a long period of time. So it's not surprising it affects function. Hmm. And it was one of those interventions, you know, at the time I was sort of, I really wanted to focus on diet and other stuff, but I was getting quite um, limited by what the family were able to do. Yeah. Mum wasn't coping well either, which is not uncommon in these situations. Mm. Um, And so, you know, it was like, okay, what are some simple things I can do that will make a difference straight away? Yeah, great stuff. Yeah. And, And how did the treatment change? Um, or your treatment for patients change before your introduction to Dale Bredesen and his protocol that he's developed to now that you're using that? Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I think one of the things is I've always been, because my background's nutrition, I've always been really interested in getting people on the right diet for them, which doesn't mean one size fits all. But with a lot of the autoimmune patients I've seen in particular, um, can I say gluten is not their friend? Yeah. Um, and it's amazing with how many people you just say, look, can we just take it out for four to six weeks and see? Because, you know, they don't test as celiac. They may or may not have one of the genes for, um, you know, potentially being celiac. Yeah. But um, brain fog is a big issue for them. And, you know, for me, brain fog is not just about gluten. It can be about a whole – any food intolerance can – present that. It's kind of that whole leaky gut, leaky brain type connection. Mm. But what I did find was with a lot of these autoimmune patients, they take out gluten and they come back and go, oh my God, you know, I just, I've got energy again. I can think, I can function. I just feel so different. And often the aches and pains would let up too. That was another thing in the Bredesen protocol was, um, you know, it's, it, it does have a number of dietary changes, which include removing gluten. And I do think it's really critical that you actually look very carefully at the diet and the right diet for that person. Yeah. So with regards to that, do you find those sometimes that we might be looking for gluten to be the bad guy, but mm. it could be as simple as carbs in general, the sugar basic intake of, of our standard Australian diet that we have? Well, I think, I think that is the – it's kind of that sugar – wheat Mm. um, combo, but the problem is by the time someone's got to developing symptoms of cognitive decline, it's too late to just improve their gut. You know, you have to go more aggressively. And I think this is one of the other things is one of the other things that's changed is I've always been a very cautious doser. You know, I've always given, you know, um, I look at the back of a label and I'd probably start with half and see how they go and then gradually build up to the recommended or therapeutic dose or I'd see what they needed. Mm. Um, And I don't use a lot of supplements. I don't know whether it's because one of my trainers was always, you know, try and pick just three. Yes. Um, Or less. But what I have, (laughs) or less, but what I have noticed with this um, protocol is that there are a lot of supplements in it and you really do need to use them in the first few months. Right. Like to get that shift because you're already talking pathology at mild cognitive decline, 
you need to get in there with the big guns quickly. Okay, so just on that, so um, does the Bredesen protocol work best with only early interventions or can it have dramatic effect for those people that are well along their way with cognitive decline? Look, I really think at this stage the research is only, is, is there to support its impact for mild cognitive impairment mm-hmm. um, and they also talk about um, SCI, which is significant cognitive impairment, yeah. but I think when you've got people who are non-verbal and aggressive, I'm not sure that you've got um, the capacity to make a huge amount of difference at that point. Um, and look, saying that, there's just not the research to support at the moment. I mean, when I did the protocol, Dale Bredesen had announced that he had um, 10 cases um, of reversal um, on his recode protocol, which mm. is what he calls it. Yep. Um, more recently, I think last year, they published, um, they've now got that case series to 100. So ah. that's happened since 2016. So, um, but a lot of those cases were at the earlier stage. Certainly they had a diagnosis and his protocols are really detailed around making sure that you've got the right diagnosis, um, which, you know, ah. is also really important. <laughs> There's you know, a hurdle. Make sure that it's not something else. Yeah. Um but also make sure you understand where it's coming from. Like what is what has been the trigger for this? And, you know, to me that's very naturopathic. I, I don't know how often I've been to these, um, you know, I've been to an event and there's a speaker who's a doctor, but almost you think, gee, you spent 30 years studying to become a naturopath. Right. Um, <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah, it's You've actually gone back to understanding not just trying to because – He'd spent a long time trying to find the one thing that turned off plaque production. Yeah. And couldn't find it. Welcome to Alzheimer's. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's a lot more complicated than just one thing. And, yeah. you know, when when you're first looking at it, there's five different areas that um, they focus on. Yeah. Um, in terms of establishing, you know, what was, the, what was the trigger for this person developing it versus someone else? And the big two from our perspective are what they call glycotoxicity, so, you know, diabetes type 3 almost, um, and um, hormonal changes. So it's known that women who have a early hysterectomy um, or particularly if they have an oophorectomy as well um, are more likely to develop Alzheimer's. Ah. Mm. So this was actually an area where it was really tricky for me because, um, you know, I've, I've kind of come, I've been trained in that area when the nurses' health study came out and, you know, it's like, oh, my God, HRT is the evil antichrist and, you know, you don't want anyone on this because it's really bad for them and they're all going to develop breast cancer. Um, and then, of course, I'm sitting here going, actually, these women particularly do need to be on HRT until they would get to a normal age for menopause Mm. or their risk of dementia is significantly higher. So there was actually some good, I mean, you know, basically it all came down to supporting appropriate detoxification of those hormones so that they went down a non-proliferative pathway. Yeah. I mean, the the HRT issue was such an interesting one with the the women's health study. Um, There was some scaremongering, but there was some, uh, also some placation of a real issue. I saw, so both sides to me were at fault. You know, one was there. There were more people who got breast cancer. Um, it wasn't great, but if it was your mum, it would be a great event. 
as in a significant event um, mm. caused by a medication. So not to be belittled and shoved under the carpet, oh, don't worry about it, it was only one in a thousand or one in 5,000 or whatever. Um, I, I don't believe that that's good enough. But wouldn't it be great to be able to tease out those women who were more at risk <laughs> and then and then treat them accordingly? Yeah. Um, but I do take your point about, you know, the, that HRT is also, for most women, quite safe for around that eight-year mark. And then it, there's a veil. We just don't know about what happens after that. Well, it's safe for if you're also working with ensuring that the liver's functioning correctly and yeah. it's going down a non-proliferative pathway, which turned out was all about using our favourite liver herbs and um, et cetera to support them or things like indole 3 carbonyl or something like that. I'm, um, a, I'm a fan of DIM. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a divide? Um, <laughs> you know, I just found it really interesting that, um, you know, at the end of the day, having to get through this process of, in my head, getting through the whole HRT debate. Um, and it was, you know, there was a really good reason here why these women, and particularly if there was any family history of yes. Alzheimer's, as well, yeah, at a genetic predisposition, and that would be a very um, unfortunate combination. So, with regards to genetic predispositions, um, is that something that um, Dale Bredesen does as a standard to work out yes. at risk? Yeah, yeah. So it's the it's called the APO4E gene. Yep. I assume it's called that because no one can say the full name. <laughs> um, like many of these genes, but um, you know, you, it depends whether you are. If you have um, one copy of the gene, your risk is increased by about 30%. And I think if you've got both copies, it can be up to about 70%. So if I had both copies of the gene, I'd be putting this protocol into effect Very <clears throat> in my early 50s, not yeah. waiting. Mm. And, and this is the other area where I think um, we as naturopaths can make a real difference is actually looking at, um, you know, managing health risk around this. If you've got Alzheimer's and dementia in the family or if you have other risk factors that put you at potential risk, you know, we can start getting people to make some of the changes that will actually support them longer term. Yeah. <clears throat> and a lot of them are very naturopathic. You know, you're talking diet, you're talking exercise, um, you're talking, you know, the other things you want to look at are whether there's a history of heavy metal toxicity, which I have to say is fairly common. Um, you know, anyone who's got a mouthful of old fillings, their mercury levels are on a on a reading of chronic mercury is going to be quite elevated. Mm. What about lead? Um, lead comes up in some people. I, I do some in-house testing with um, heavy metals, and what I've found is lead is less common. I don't know if it's because we moved to unleaded petrol in the 90s, but there will be... It's interesting. I've had quite a few people from the UK who've tested as high in lead. Mm. Um, here it seems to be more mercury, um, and I don't think it's necessarily because of fish. I think it's because of a couple of other um, suspects, yeah. you know, particularly a mouthful of old fillings. It's interesting when you're reading the results, um, you can see I, I can basically look at it and go, oh, they've got silver and mercury, must be old fillings because that's the combination that was used. Right not just a heavy use of colloidal silver <laughs> right. or something. Yeah, the, the purple man. <laughs> yes. So what are the most common effects or benefits that you see happening with, you know, let's concentrate on mild cognitive impairment? One of the things that you often see happening is that the brain fog lifts. 
um, for people, which is really, really fabulous. So they will see small signs of memory improvement. Maybe it's they remember where they parked the car in Westfield. Um, maybe it's that they remember where the keys are or what their partner said to them two minutes ago in the kitchen and then they walked out and forgot all about it. Um, but also you find that because the protocol is working on other things as well, you know, because you're working systemically to reduce inflammation, other health challenges will also improve. So really I see often um, things like aches and pains. Yeah. I, I had a patient who I've been using aspects of the protocol with her. She's not a – there is dementia in the family but I was actually working with her on rheumatoid arthritis. And one of the things is she said before she started, she would have good days and bad days. Yep. You know, and in any week, it could be half and half. And now what she notices is the bad days are very rare. So her overall health has improved significantly. And that's, that's a really nice benefit. Um, you know, you, you're looking for sort of the things around memory to improve. Um, but that can take, you know, sometimes it can take three to six months before you see any real changes there. If other aspects of their health start improving, then you actually know that you're on the right track with what you're doing as well. It, it just gives you those pointers that, hey, this is actually having an effect. Um, and, you know, I, I see often with dietary changes, it will be with a patient with less pathology, it's usually six to 12 weeks before they really start to get the full benefit of the changes. With these patients, it's probably three to six months. Right. And mm. and I guess we've got to also ask the question, you know, when you're getting an elderly patient mm. um, and you've got a diagnosis, let's say you've got a diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment or even moderate cognitive mm. impairment, I guess there's got to be that question of, okay, what bang for buck are you going to get for how much money are you going to throw at this? So changing a diet is something mm. that, you know, as long as it's healthful and well thought out, well planned, and that's a real issue if they're in an institution, but let's say it, mm. let's just take the utopian um, view and say that they're still at home being cared for by family members. Um, yep. So if dietary... Um, intake can be changed to a more Mediterranean style, then that's something that's very affordable. It's very usable. But once you start adding in a lot of supplements, that becomes a real drain on a lot of, of family purses, if you like. So, um, you know, how much bang for buck do you get with this? Is, is it worth it with these elderly patients? I know that's a horrible decision. I... Look, I think of mild cognitive impairment, it probably depends a bit, a little bit, if you're being realistic on when it hits. If you've got someone who's in their early, mid-50s and they may need to stop working because of this, then I would say invest the money in the supplements. Give it three to six months because, seriously, if you can keep someone in the workforce for another five years, they'll more than pay for it yeah. themselves. Yeah. Um, where it gets difficult is when they're retired and they're on fixed incomes, in which case, you know, as a naturopath, you go for, well, okay, I would look at it from the perspective of what's, what are the, you know, three or four things that are most essential? What can I do with diet? And, if, if, you know, is there anything I can do with diet? And it's really hard at this stage. Um, and so, look, realistically, what would I be paring down to if I had to do that? I'd definitely be looking at having done the gut work, essentially, 
keeping gluten and dairy out of the diet and, and having a very um, sound Mediterranean diet, probably with a lot of seafood in it as well. And then looking at, okay, you've done your gut repair, look at fish oils, look at um, blood sugar. I mean, the blood sugar support is critical in this. The brain uses 30% of the body's glucose. If you can, um, I suppose the other dietary tweak I would look at is seeing if they can fast for up to 12 hours overnight, mm. which actually isn't that difficult, really. You're talking finish eating dinner at 7 and don't have breakfast till 7.38. Yeah. So that doesn't tend to be too problematic for people, but it does make a difference for a lot of patients I have who use some form of fasting say that their brain fog lifts. Yep. Um, so that would be, and again, that's not an expensive intervention, but I would also, I would really be looking at these clients with some form of blood sugar support, mm. whether it's your herbs or whether it's, um, you know, if you're using cinnamon or chromium and magnesium, which I think are also essential with these cases. Yep. Um, you've got to make sure that you're supporting those mechanisms. And then and then it's really specific to whatever else is going on for them. You know, so when you're looking at the protocol, you look at are there, there's five areas that actually are relevant for these um, for the causation. So traumatic brain injury is one area. So we know that people who get punched in the head like boxes a lot yep. are more prone to developing it. Um, I've never actually treated any cases like that. I think it probably progresses way too fast. Um, we know that, the, as I mentioned, the hormonal and the glycotoxicity, the other areas are heavy metals and vascular, so where it's associated with increased cardiovascular risk. So if you're looking at vascular, you're obviously going to be looking at all the things that would support the vascular system as well. So you're looking at your magnesiums, you're looking at a good quality multivitamin, you're making sure that they've got adequate levels of um, you know, B9 and B12 in particular, um, and you'd be looking definitely at fish oils. Mm. And then I think, you know, whatever else is indicated by the case in front of you would probably be where you would go in terms of supplements if you had to pare it down. Yep. Um, and then there's also things like Bacopa and Ginkgo, which, you know, you obviously want to improve brain perfusion, but obviously, if they've got cardiovascular risk, you've got to be a bit careful with the herbs you use as well. Mm, for sure. So what about interactions? Are there any red flags that we really need to know about? Look, I haven't seen anything. I mean, you know, it's always specific to the particular medications. What I've found is most of the time it's not a problem. It's just if they're on the dreaded warfarin, um, that yeah. can make life really, really <laughs> Interactions difficult. with everything. <laughs> <laughs> yes, basically, interactions with everything. So then you're really looking at having to focus very heavily on diet. Um, I mean, you can monitor INR um, if you can get the doctor to work with you on mm, it. That yeah. is an option. Yeah. But I don't know. I'm, I suppose it's the – I'm fairly risk-averse, so I would always want to try and do as much as possible with nutrients, um, you know, because you're, you're pretty safe with most of your um, nutrients, except, of course, if they're on a potassium-sparing diuretic then, of course, you have to be very careful not using anything that has more potassium in it than a banana. Mm. But but mm. I, I just wanted to catch myself there. I, I made a flippant comment about, you know, warfarin, interaction with everything. Indeed, as you say, there are a lot of things that when you look at it, the concerns that have been voiced and still exist, indeed, still um, require mandatory warnings in Australia, um, really they, they don't stack up. And it's a, it's a sad state of affairs where I, I get that the TGA is for 
you know, errs on the side of caution for the safety. Mm. But where it's actually been shown to be not the case, it's a little bit of a sad case that those warnings remain. I'm talking specifically about CoQ10 here, but, um, you know, but as you say, in all cases, INR must be monitored, you know, and and the worst thing that you want is to have an adverse effect from an interaction. So you've got to get it, um, you've got to get the, um, you know, the permission of the doctor to work with you to to check the INR more regularly. Yeah. And that's probably the other tricky thing with running this protocol is I have only just found, um, I've found a couple of GPs who are in my area who are quite supportive of running the mainstream tests I need um, for their patients. Um, but usually it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a journey with those doctors. The, um, there's another uh, guy who is working a lot in this area and, um, he is an integrative GP, so if you can find those people to work with, that's really helpful too because he's got access to a broader range of testing than we do. And when I say access to a broader range of testing, I mean they can actually prescribe more under Medicare, which helps keep the cost down for patients. And that's the big issue. The testing on this is actually quite a, a, a detailed list of things that need to be checked. Um, let's go back to the risk factors. Um, is there anything else that we really need to know about that? Look, I think one of the big ones that I probably haven't gone into enough detail on is infection and heavy metal toxicity. So, for example, um, the research says that if you've worked with aluminium processing, and this could be, you know, you are the foreman and you're above the factory floor, but um, your risk of developing Alzheimer's can be up to eight times higher. Mm. So it's really important to make sure that they don't have high levels of aluminium, that they don't have as well as other heavy metal toxicities. And the other area that's um, really concerning is um, infection. So in the US, they talk a lot about SIRS and um, Lyme. Um, So SIRS is uh, the chronic inflammatory respiratory syndrome arising from mould toxicity. But, you know, that's becoming an increasing area of interest in Australia and particularly anyone who's working in Queensland, I think, after those floods will have seen a lot of cases where of mould-related illness. Um, but, you know, where you've got that chronic infection that just keeps producing inflammation, it does affect the brain. Um, and Lyme-like, well, we'll call it Lyme-like illness in Australia is also another risk factor for that. But don't forget things like simple dental um, in inflammation. So things like people who've had underlying abscesses that haven't been treated, etc. Um, there was an Indian Journal of Psychiatry in 2006 that highlights that um, somewhere of um, up to 23% of so-called reversible dementias relate to heavy metal toxicity as well as Lyme and advanced syphilis. But we don't see a lot of advanced syphilis in Australia. Thank goodness for that. Uh, that's really interesting, though. Advanced syphilis? You can really get reversal of advanced syphilis? Well, I think the thing is, it, this is an Indian journal, mm. so I'm not sure what they had actually defined as advanced syphilis, but ah, right. I would presume it was cases where, you know, in Australia, I think it would be treated very early. In India, that may not be the case. So uh, yes. where they were along that progression... Um, you know, whether they were at the stage of um, having a lot of... Uh, organic uh, brain disease, yeah. Organic brain disease or, or other um, appearances, you know, other changes to their physical appearance as well because, you know, it's a really um, damaging disease. But I would have thought perhaps it's something that hasn't been treated in the first few years 
and has done some damage to that person. Anyway, it was an Indian Journal of Psychiatry in 2006 and it was an article on reversible dementias. Oh, okay. Well, we'll, we'll mm. put that um, article up on the FX Medicine website for our listeners to, to access. That's really interesting. Um, and, of course, there's these chronic infections. We don't, we, you know, when we, whenever we talk about infection, we always think about a known infection, something that mm. causes you to think of being infected, a fever, pain, that, you know, the, rub the, the five um, hallmarks of inflammation. But very often we've got these chronic insidious infections, <coughs> dental issues, for instance, one of the, the horrible things, um, propionibacterium no. acnes, uh. you know? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, you know, so we talk about these fulminant type infections, but very often there's these chronic infections that cause really bad health effects, not just cardiovascular, but mental as well. Well, you know, and you even look to, you know, things like um, chronic fatigue being triggered off someone having CMV yeah. or yes. glandular fever. Yes. You know, it's not these viruses, um, most of the population recovers, but there's a certain percentage that don't, and they have these underlying health effects for years and decades. And that, to me, is a, a, a hallmark or, or a, a flag that should be waved. You know, we very often think about attacking the offender, um, mm. you know, but what about resilience? What about looking at these base bodily defences, the normal reaction that our body, you know, uses to cope with these? And why don't some people react in that same way? How can we best support that organism? You know, and that goes back to diet, as you say, primarily, but, but there, I guess there's other things that we can intervene with as well. Well, diet and supporting the immune system, yeah. um, but also, you know, getting, I, I think getting the gut working effectively, getting that broad range of um, different gut bacteria to support our function and mm. support our immune system. Yes, indeed. Now, um, you mentioned earlier regarding fish oil and how it calmed, um, you know, patients with aggression, things like that, or agitation even. Mm. Um and I, I guess that this goes back to, you know, good naturopathic management, but w what other things would you use there or could you use? Well, I think all your comminatives, if they're able to be used in this situation, would be really helpful. I mean, you know, um, simple things like if you, if you want to do it from a dietary perspective, you might use chamomile or chamomile tea, mm. um, passion flower, um, magnolia, those sort of things. Yeah. Um, Rather than actually, you know, because a lot of the time in Alzheimer's and dementia, the agitation is, it's around the anxiety of, I can't remember this stuff, I don't know what's going on. And, of course, the other really important one to use is obviously um, curcumin or turmeric um, because that's got a really nice anti-inflammatory effect for the whole brain. And when the brain is disordered in this aspect, um, anything you can do which supports that reducing inflammation, I think is really helpful. Absolutely. But I think for the patient, you know, you want to go in with some gentle herbs to work on this and also the things that don't tend to have a lot of other interactions with any of the other medications they might be on. Mm. But if nothing mm. else, curries. Yeah, a lot <laughs> of curries. Lots and lots of curries. You've got to get five grams of turmeric in there. You're going to be very yellow. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? Like even with a stir fry, I, f I find mm. that... It's amazing how much um, turmeric you can load into a stir fry. 
you know, when you get the, the, yeah. the chicken and the oils protected there and some nice garlic and onion going, and then mm. you can just shake, shake away, mix, shake away. It's amazing how much turmeric you can load into a, a, like a chicken stir fry or something like that. And, you know, that um, I think in traditional diets, um, in the areas where the research has come about turmeric and curcumin, they are using that and they're using it every single day yes. and they've been doing it for years. Yes. I mean, I think the reason for us to use supplements in this case is possibly because that may be too big a shift for their diet at this point and also you're trying to load a lot of curcumin in. Very true. Hmm. But I think those, um, those community herbs can be really helpful um, for managing some of the side effects with those patients. What about herbs like kava? You know, like to me, like kava is one of my favourite go-to herbs. And indeed, if I had a clinic and had to use, had to choose between 20 things, kava would have to be in there. The evidence is there. Jerome Saris has done really good work, you know, showing that it doesn't have the impairment that uh, things like benzos do, for instance, and that it indeed it works with at least generalised anxiety disorder. How useful do you find it when you've got quite a complex array of things going on and you've got medicines that you have to be careful of? Um, I, I guess I haven't been thinking about that one so much. Um, I probably seem to have, <laughs> looking at it, I think I have a preference for the flowers. Ah, okay. Um, <laughs> but um, it was interesting. I was in Fiji last year and um, kava is basically a solution for everything. Yeah. Upset stomach, have some kava. Sure. <laughs> Anxious, have kava. Mm. Can't sleep, have kava. Um, and it really did make me start looking at kava in a slightly different light. Um, apart from having it as from the dried root is quite disgusting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Drinking mud. Yeah, actually, that's probably the best description I've heard of it. <laughs> so I presume as a capsule or a tablet, it's probably a bit easier to absorb, but it seems to me that that would also be a good addition. Um, now, Natural Medicine Week is coming up in May. Um, I guess we're going back to the future here or back to the beginning, ATMS. What events has ATMS organised to help natural medicine professionals to celebrate Natural Medicine Week? So what we've been doing is we're actually trying to encourage practitioners to run events around Australia um, to promote natural medicine during Natural Medicine Week. There's actually a specific website, naturalmedicineweek.com.au. Uh-huh. And when I say practitioners, ATMS is um, being quite collaborative with this. We're opening it up to any member of a professional association. You don't need to be a member of our association. You can be a member of any of the other associations and we will still promote your event on the site. Um, there's over... Um, Last year, we had over 100 events and special offers promoted, but I think this year with an election in the offing, um, it's really important that we have natural medicine in all our local members' faces as much as possible during this time. Well, local members and the candidates for their seat at the moment because it looks like there's going to be a little bit of change. Absolutely. And and, and we're also looking at a potential review um, of the situation with health funds. So, again, I think it's even more important this year that people promote the benefits of natural medicine and the sort of things people are doing are workshops. Um, we've got webinars that we're running that people can share with their clients. So this is um, for people who don't want to run their own workshop. This is an alternative. They can share the webinar with their clients on a range of topics. Gotcha. Mm. 
So the idea is that, um, and so we're hoping to get as much information about Natural Medicine Week out into the community as possible through that. Yeah. I, I think, you know, it's important that, A, we realise that, you know, many Australians um, choose some form of natural medicine. We need to do it safely and we need to do it with under the care of responsible practitioners who know what they're doing and are, you know, re, um, appropriately trained in their in their area. And I think this is a great, um, great way in which we can highlight um, what Australian um, natural medicine practitioners do for the public um, to help guide their health with whatever evidence is available, you know, in those sort of um, modalities. So it's a great thing. Absolutely. And look, if um, people are still interested, we will list events and special offers on the website up to Natural Medicine Week starting on the 20th of May. So if people are interested, um, they just go to the website and click the button at the top on the right-hand side to register their event, or they can just register a special offer in their clinic. So um, a lot of um, our massage therapists are just registering, you know, an offer where it's either it's a discount on treatment or it might be an addition to treatment. You know, some people are offering an extra 15 minutes with a one-hour massage during Natural Medicine Week or um, giving an oil blend or something else additional as part of an offer to encourage people to book in and experience natural medicine for themselves. Uh, it's great work that the ATMS is doing for Australian practitioners. Uh, Christine, just as a last thing, with regards to cognitive impairment, any further resources that practitioners can access so that they can learn more about how to manage these patients appropriately? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've got a blog where I've summarised um, the course I did and also some tips on treatment, um, it's Christine Pope Nutritionist if you want to just Google it and there are also links on there to um, quite a number of the research papers that Dale Bredesen mentioned and there is training in the US that's offered on a regular basis um, for the RECODE protocol by Dale Bredesen so that if you're really interested that would definitely be worth following up. Fantastic work, fantastic resources. Well done, Christine, and thank you so much for taking us through this. I mean, it's a tragic group of conditions and, uh, and you know, with a very sad end in many cases, but you're doing really good work to ease that burden of healthcare and, and ease the, the suffering of these patients. So well done to you. Thanks, Andrew. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Thanks for listening. To make sure you never miss an episode, Subscribe to us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify. You can also let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover by contacting us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au or by connecting with us on Facebook or Instagram.